You are listening to the How That Works podcast. My name is Xavier, and this is the time of day where I get to discuss all the wonders and curiosities that the world around us has to offer. Before we get to learning and expanding our minds, lest I remind you, this is not the traditional podcast. We are here to discuss everything tech, science, nature, history, and travel. As we are here discussing, I encourage you to leave your comments, thoughts, and further curiosities on the social places. All right. You better get ready for it. It's that time to grab your favorite cup of tea, relax on the couch, or enjoy a run, because we're about to get curious. Another day, another week to be asking how that works. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about light bulbs, the anatomy of light bulbs, and what turns them on. (laughs) Don't go there. I'm going to break down the science and why of the very first light bulb that Edison invented way back when, and I'm going to be talking about how we've evolved his initial idea into neon tubes and LED lights that we use today. Alright, time to get enlightened. To understand the light bulb, we first need to understand the maker. On a chilly winter morning on the 11th of February in 1847, our world's greatest revolutionary was born, Thomas Alva Edison. Surprisingly enough, he received most of his education at home. This would actually be one of the greatest things his mother could have done for him. As a biographer once noted, she brought him to the stage of learning. His mother knew he was very fond of chemistry and electronics and allowed him to experiment with that while also learning. In 1859 is where it all really began, as this was the time when he got a job working for the rail company. From there, he moved on to a telegraph office that sent telegraphs from the U.S. to Canada. During his time there, he sought out ways to improve the current system that was in place already. And so, the automatic telegraph is invented. And then the duplex telegraph, and then eventually the message printer. He got so excited about all these inventions and new ways of doing things that he quit his job and dedicated his time to become a full-time inventor. A whole while later, he decided to move to New York and set up a laboratory. In 1875, his father Samuel oversaw the construction of this lab, and in 1876, it finally opened. Now, it's important to keep in mind the lights they had at the time before Edison's discovery of the incandescent bulb. At the time, the only form of light next to candles were gas, oil, and arc lamps. Arc lamps were mainly used to light up streets or large factories. Today's equivalent would be using a spotlight as your nightlight. Not very efficient, I'd say. These arc lamps also produced a number of dangerous UV rays and radio frequency interference. So as you can imagine, these arc lamps were just a headache to use. Oh, and they also gave you those as well. So now in the time between 1878 to 1880, Edison had tested more than 3000 different theories on how to develop an efficient incandescent bulb. Incandescent lamps made light by running electricity through a thin strip of material or filament to heat it up until it got hot enough to produce light. Edison's main goal was to invent a high-resistance system that needed lower amounts of power. And he did exactly that. 
By January of 1879, he had built his first high-resistant incandescent electric bulb. It worked by him passing electricity through a super-thin platinum filament in a glass vacuum bulb. This delayed the filament from melting. However, the lamp only burned for a few short hours. He needed to get back to the drawing board to make the bulb last even longer. He tested thousands and thousands of other materials to use for the filament. He even went so far as to try to use tungsten, which is actually the metal we use for light bulb filaments today. Unfortunately, he was limited by the tools of his time. Can you imagine if he had the tools and technologies we have today available to him? I bet he could come up with some super crazy stuff. Anyhow, this didn't stop him as he persisted on and on to eventually break through. Edison later decided to try a carbonized cotton thread filament. When he applied electricity to the bulb, it started to glow a soft orange, and only 15 hours later did it completely burn out. But this was a major step in a new direction. More and more experimentation eventually led to a bulb that could burn for days on end. Edison then applied for his patent and received patent number 223,898 for Edison's electric lamp. What's so amazing about this story is how persistent he was in his pursuit to invent the impossible. There were obviously naysayers and haters along the way but that discouraged him, but he was relentless. This leads me to my favorite quote, which has been interpreted in many, many ways, but this is my favorite version. It goes like this. I have not failed 10,000 times. I have not failed once. I have succeeded in proving that those 10,000 ways will not work. When I have eliminated the ways that will not work, I will find the way that will work. That was a great earful of history, and I think that's enough of that. We have looked at Edison and how his idea came to be, but now I want to go into more detail about the anatomy of the bulb and why it gets so turned on when electricity runs through it. The bulbs we have today are super easy to screw into a socket and they just work. But how does that work and what's actually happening? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to actually tell you. So most of all people know what a standard incandescent bulb looks like. A glass bulb with some wires on the inside and a base that screws in. It's time to break it down piece by piece. So the bulb itself is made of glass and actually contains a mixture of argon and nitrogen gas. Air is pumped out of the bulb and replaced by these gases. The argon and nitrogen actually help with extending the lifetime, or should I say light time, of the filament. The filament as I already told you is made of tungsten and gets bent the way it does into a coil shape by bending it around a metal bar or a so-called mandrel. The filament is then heated through an annealing process and finally dissolved in acid to give you the resultant filament coil. Attaching the coil to the base is the lead-in wires that are actually made of an, a nickel-iron mixture. These lead-in wires are attached via hooks that are pressed over the filament or in the case of larger bulbs they get spot welded to the filament. And lastly, we have the base of it all, actually called the Edison screw base, named after yours truly, Edison. This base was originally made from brass that was insulated with plaster and then later on with porcelain. The bases we have today are made from aluminum, which are much, much stronger and easier to manufacture. So now how do you actually make one of these and why does it work? Allow me to shed some light on this subject. That was from Meet the Robinsons, by the way. 
So firstly, the filament is mounted onto a stem assembly with the ends clamped onto the two lead-in wires. Next, the air inside the bulb is pumped out and filled with argon and nitrogen gas. The tungsten will eventually evaporate and break. As it evaporates, it leaves a dark residue on the bulb known as bulb wall blackening. And then finally, the base and the bulb are sealed. The base slides easily onto the end of the glass bulb so that no other material is needed to keep them together. The lead-in wires make contact with the aluminum base and voila, we have light. After they are tested, the bulbs are placed in their packages and are sent to stores for you to buy them. So if we used incandescent bulbs for so long and they were so efficient, why do we now have energy savers and LED light bulbs? Truth be told, the incandescents were actually extremely inefficient. When electricity is run through the bulb and to the filament, an average of 95% of the electricity is actually converted into heat. This means that the other 5% makes up the light part of the bulb. This system would be more efficient at being a cooking utensil rather than a light source at this point. This is where fluorescent lamps and LEDs came in, as they were able to bring this energy consumption down by up to 75% to be more efficient. This also led to the invention of light-emitting diodes, or LEDs for short. LED lights are comprised of compound semiconductor materials. These are made up of elements from group 3 and group 5 of the periodic table, also known as 3-5 materials. This is the Greek 3 and Greek 5, not to be confused with the number 35. Anyhow, examples of 3-5 materials that are commonly used to make LEDs include gallium arsenide and gallium phosphide. A quick side note, the type of compound used in the LED will determine the color that gets emitted. So this is all cool that we have energy efficient substances, but how do they actually work? I want to know too. So listen here quickly. LEDs actually create light by means of electroluminescence in the semiconductor material. You're probably wanting a definition for electroluminescence. Here it is. When electricity runs through a material, it lights up like a Christmas tree. Alright, alright, here's the proper one. Electroluminescence is the phenomenon of a material that emits light when electric current or an electric field is passed through it. That's almost exactly what I said. This actually happens when electrons are sent through the material and fill electron holes. So an electron hole exists when an atom lacks electrons or is negatively charged and therefore has a positive charge. Semiconductor materials like germanium or silicon can be doped to create and control the number of electron holes. Doping is the adding of other elements to the semiconductor material to change its properties. By doping our semiconductor friend, you can make two separate types of semiconductors in the same crystal. The boundary between the two types is called a PN junction. The junction only allows current to pass through it one way. This is why they are used as diodes. LEDs are made using PN junctions. As electrons pass through one crystal to the other, they fill the electron holes in between them and light up. I can go into a lot more detail about PN junctions and semiconductors, but this isn't a lecture. We're just discussing this stuff here. It is, however, important to understand that at this point, the LEDs were just bare substance through which a current could run and produce light. Engineers needed to figure out a way to encapsulate this light source. And that's exactly what they did. In order to maximize the brightness of LEDs, they developed an epoxy case, or should I rather say a light cone, to control how the light escapes the semiconductors. This also helped to refract and bounce the light off of all the surfaces inside the semiconductor crystal to intensify the light output.
Interestingly enough, a single LED can last up to 50,000 hours. This is 50 times more efficient than our friend, the incandescent. So now if these bulbs are so much better, what are the drawbacks? I'm glad you asked. There actually aren't that many drawbacks to LEDs, which is great. However, a few notable ones that I could find went as follows. First one I found was that they actually also produce heat as a byproduct when they're being used. The excess heat collects in the neck of the bulb just above the socket. And because it is such a small space, high temperatures can build up quite quickly and raises the temperature of the air inside the bulb. Everybody knows that working under heat isn't exactly the best for efficiency. Same is true for the LED. The electronic components such as the chips and capacitors struggle under these high temperatures and if sustained long enough, they will eventually fail. Another potential reason that these LEDs can burn out is that the semiconductor actually gets tired in a sense. As we said earlier, electricity is passed through the semiconductor and electrons fill the electron holes. This process is what produces the light in the semiconductor materials. However, over time, the semiconductor will lose its capacity to transfer these electrons, and this is what causes the LEDs to burn or dim out. So while it's not the same as conventional burning out, it does get dimmer and dimmer over time and eventually needs to be replaced. So seeing as no matter what kind of bulb it is, they all eventually burn out. So what happens with the burnt out bulbs? Are they reused and recycled? Are they just thrown away? Let's explore that for a quick minute or so. So the first idea I can share with you is to upcycle your old globes and turn them into pot plants or vases. What I did a while back with a burnt out bulb was that I removed the black ceiling cap and also removed all the insides so that I was left with a clean bulb. I then took some dirt and some pebbles and laid out a foundation on the inside of the bulb. I also bought some moss and some small evergreen ferns to plant inside the bulb. Once it was all planted, I sprayed some water on the inside of the bulb and then sealed the open end with a cork. Just like that, you have your own self-sustaining terrarium that looks like a miniature forest. Just remember to occasionally put it in the sun to give it that good vitamin D. My terrarium is overgrown. What do I do? Simply remove the cork and transfer these plants to your garden or to a proper pot plant. Problem solved. This won't exactly work with an LED. So what now? LEDs can actually be recycled into new LEDs. So please don't be so quick to throw them away. Locate your closest recycling center and drop them off there. The recycling process for LEDs usually involves the bulbs being crushed and separated using a bar screen. From there, the glass is passed through a magnetic field to remove any ferrous material that may still be present. The leftover glass and aluminum can be reused over and over to make other products or even to make new LEDs. And that, good friends, is the end of this enlightening discussion. I do hope you learned something today and that you can bring this up in your discussions wherever they might take you. I hope I have left your curiosity satisfied today. It is indeed the time to do housekeeping. Let's level and have our moment for now. Thank you so very much for listening to this episode and allowing me to shed light on your curiosity. If you did enjoy this episode, then please do hit the follow, like, or subscribe button wherever it is that you're listening to this show. It helps me grow and reach more curious people like yourself. You can also help me grow by following me on my social places. Find me over on Instagram over at how underscore that underscore works. Don't forget to save my latest post though. I don't have anything new to share with you this week. I will, however, say that if you have any ideas on how I can improve or you have a curiosity that I can explore, please do drop a comment on the social places and I can maybe explore your curiosity. 
You have been an illuminating listener. So here's to you shining bright. This is all the time we have together. So until next week's episode, stay always curious.